As you turn to Exodus 3, this is week 2 from Inside the Hatch. And if you haven't seen Lost, it'll make a good self-quarantine or social distancing watch. Just don't uh, bother with the finale. But we'll save uh, binge recommendations for another day. Right now, let's jump into the Word and continue our journey through God's redemption story. Some of you may have more downtime right now, maybe not from your jobs because you're working at home, but with fewer extracurriculars. And so if you've gotten behind in reading through the Bible this year, if that was your plan, I would encourage you to use some of this extra time to catch up. Um, and, and not in a religious check-the-box kind of way, but in a I, I'm doing this because I want to love God by knowing God more kind of way. Uh, our journey on Sundays this week brings us into the second book of the Bible, and so let's pray and jump into the text. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to stay connected as a church family through these, these strange times we're living in. We thank you for the gift of technology. We pray it would work not only for us, but it would work for the, the multitude of churches around our nation, around the world that are gathering like this today, that that the, the live services would, would stream with, with as little buffering as possible, that the homes where the families are worshiping together would, would, would be filled with a sense of the presence of God, that, that nothing that you want to accomplish in and through your people will be hindered today because we're gathering in, in such a way. Uh, Father, we thank you, you're sovereign through all of this, in all of this, that uh, we can trust your work, even if uh, it feels really weird and uncomfortable. You are still at work, and so work in us today, Father. Let your spirit, let your word accomplish your purposes in us today. For your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We left off last Sunday with Joseph being used by God to help Egypt weather a famine and have such a surplus of food that surrounding nations and peoples could benefit from the wisdom God gave Joseph, including his father and 11 brothers and families. And so Joseph and his sons and their families, Exodus uh, 21, uh, Exodus 1 tells us, about 70 people in all, moved from Canaan to the land of Goshen, outside of Egypt. Because of the respect given to Joseph, Jacob was welcomed by Pharaoh. They were allowed to herd their sheep and live out their lives, separate from the Egyptians, but allowed to prosper. Uh, the promises given to Abraham back in Genesis 12 and repeated in 15 and, and 17 and so forth, a land, numerous descendants, and able to bless the whole world, they're not at all fulfilled by the end of Genesis. They're not in the land. They're only 70 people, and they're not even a blip on the world radar. But as time passes, about 400 years, the 70 grow into over a million, uh, we think, 600,000 men plus women and children, they're still in Goshen, <clears throat> and um, so now you have numerous descendants, but they're not in the land, and they're still not much along the lines of blessing the, the world. They, they're significant people, but they're, they're not making much of an impact on the world yet. What they are doing is they're making the Egyptians nervous. Just so many people, they're afraid the Egyptians are that these people could rise up and overtake them. Um, and, and cause a lot of problems, and so much time has passed. The Egyptians don't remember Joseph. They don't remember how these people got here, the good that he did. And so their fears led them to enslave the Hebrews into forced labor and treat them harshly and impose their will on them. But the Jews kept growing in number. So they ordered the midwives of the Hebrews to murder the Hebrew boys. 
The midwives, thankfully, feared God more than Pharaoh and refused that order, made up a little fabrication saying the Jewish women were so much more vigorous than the Egyptian women. They give birth so fast before the midwife arrives. And God blessed them, blessed the midwives, gave the midwives families. Not a justification to lie anytime and be blessed by God, but in some circumstances, when the life of another human being is on the line, for instance, in the face of an evil and corrupt government, there is grace and blessing to protect life, much like the German Christians who hid the Jews from the Nazis in the 30s and 40s. Well, as you know from the Ten Commandments, uh, or the Prince of Egypt, one of the baby boys from the tribe of Levi was named Moses. Born to his mom, hidden in a basket in the reeds of the Nile, discovered by the princess of Egypt with his sister Miriam crouching by to be available to find a mom. Oh, I just happened to know a mom who could nurse him and raise him in these early years. So Moses returns to his mom, is raised until he's old enough to live in the palace, and there in the palace he's educated in some of the finest schools in the world and grows up as an adopted son of Pharaoh. Along the way, he had learned or was taught or somehow remembered his birth family and the, the heritage that he shared with them. And when he saw an Egyptian soldier uh, abusing a Jewish slave, he killed the Egyptian, burying him in the sand. Well, Pharaoh finds out, tries to kill him, but he escapes to the land of Midian. And there he meets a priest who had a daughter and he gets married and, and lives the life of a shepherd. Now, we know Moses was 80 when he confronted Pharaoh, and typically Moses' life is separated into three 40-year periods. The first 40 was in Egypt, the second 40 as a shepherd of Midian, and the last 40 confronting Pharaoh in, in the wilderness until he dies at 120 years old. But we pick up with an 80-year-old Moses in Exodus 3, actually beginning at the end of Exodus 2, uh, verse 23. After a long time, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned because of their difficult labor, and they cried out, and their cry for help because of the difficult labor ascended to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob, and God saw the Israelites, and God knew. Meanwhile, Moses was shepherding the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. He led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Then the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire within a bush. As Moses looked, he saw that the bush was on fire, but was not consumed. So Moses thought, I must go over and look at this remarkable sight. Why isn't the bush burning up? When the Lord saw he had gone over to look, God called out to him from the bush, Moses, Moses, here I am, he answered. Do not come closer, he said. Remove the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. And he continued, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have observed the misery of my people in Egypt and have heard them crying out because of their oppressors. I know about their sufferings, and I have come down to rescue them from the power of the Egyptians and to bring them from that land to a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the territory of the Canaanites, the Hethites, the Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. So because the Israelites' cry for help has come to me, and I have also seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them, therefore go. I am sending you to Pharaoh so that you may lead my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses asked God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And he answered, I will certainly be with you. 
And this will be a sign to you that I am the one who sent you. When you bring the people out of Egypt, you will all worship God at this mountain. Then Moses asked God, If I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What should I tell them? God replied to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say this to the Israelites, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is how I am to be remembered in every generation. So God then tells him to gather the elders and go tell Pharaoh that we need to leave Egypt and go worship God, but God already knows the response of Pharaoh, verse 19. However, I know that the king of Egypt will not allow you to go, even under force from a strong hand. When I stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all my miracles that I will perform in it, after that he will let you go. If you go into chapter 4, you see Moses standing up, saying to God, Yes, sir, let's do this, and then boldly marching off to see Pharaoh. Certainly, that's what he would have done after having this amazing encounter and experience with God, right? Well, not at all. He is terrified. He does not want the job. God proves himself to Moses by showing him some signs that he can perform, proving God is with him, but it's, it's not enough. Moses then blames his lack of speaking ability. Okay, then your brother Aaron can do the talking. Uh, okay, I, I guess I'll go do this. Not at all some kind of spiritual superhero with a cape and a red M on his chest. He is more like we would be. But eventually he goes, and you begin to read of his encounters with Pharaoh. This does not at all go over well with the Israelites either. No one was just falling over themselves, excited to have this guy show up, thinking he would be the deliverer from slavery. In fact, uh, when Moses shows up, it actually gets worse before it gets better. The Egyptians figure, you got all this time to want to go worship God, then the work is too easy, so let's make the work harder. Make bricks with no straw. Well, eventually Moses confronts Pharaoh, and it goes about as well as you'd expect. Pharaoh, God has sent me, the God of the Hebrews, you need to let them go so they can worship me. Pharaoh only increases his grip on them. And then you see God beginning to demonstrate his power through the famous plagues of Egypt, the ten plagues. How many can you name without looking? Just take a minute and see. Like You can pause this. Uh, you get bonus points for getting them in order. Go ahead and try All right, water turns to blood, then frogs, then lice, then flies, then disease on cattle, boils, hail, locust, darkness, and then finally the death of the firstborn. What is really going on is that this is a power encounter between Yahweh, the one true Most High God, the God who has a covenant with his people, a power encounter between him and the pagan gods of Egypt. As the two lines of humanity branched out from the Garden of Eden, the line of the seed of the woman, who would one day crush the head of the serpent, and the offspring of the serpent, whom God said in Genesis 3.15, there would be enmity, war between these two lines of people. Various pagan gods and the worship of pagan gods were created by the, the offspring of the serpent. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and their offspring so far haven't been corrupted by the worship of pagan gods. Uh, they would and would continue to struggle throughout their history over and over worshiping false gods. For the Egyptians, it would be gods like the god of the Nile or the gods of frogs and fertility, the god of the earth, the god of flies, 
God's associated with bulls and cows and, and livestock, God's of healing, God's of the sky and the sun god, and eventually even Pharaoh himself was considered a deity. Pharaoh had ordered the execution of Hebrew males at the beginning of Exodus, and in the final plague, it would be the firstborn sons of Egypt that would die. Through these power encounters, God is making it clear, not only to the Egyptians, but also to his own people, who num number now over a million, there is only one God who alone has the greatest power over life and death and everything. So some interesting details. For the first two plagues, Pharaoh's magicians could duplicate the plagues. But by the third plague, the magicians of Pharaoh said, we, we cannot do this. This is a power we don't have, which, yes, does show God is the most high one true God with the greatest power. But the serpent and his offspring have some power, too, that cannot be dismissed. Spiritual warfare is as clear in this passage as any passage in the Bible, literally God and Satan putting on a power display. And of, of course, it's not a fair battle. It's not a contest. Uh, it's not as though Satan has a, a chance. It's like me trying to play one-on-one -on -one with LeBron. I would have to simply hope that he wouldn't care and wouldn't try, which happens. Otherwise, I'd have no shot. Or playing one-on-one -on -one with Jordan, I'd instantly be destroyed. Even more, Satan has power, power that can impact our lives, but no match for the Most High God. The second detail to note, the first three plagues affected both the Israelites and Egyptians, but beginning with the fourth plague, God makes a distinction between his people and the Egyptians. The flies, the disease on cattle, the boils, hail, locusts, darkness would not occur in the land of Goshen. They would be protected, but they did suffer with the Egyptians in the first three plagues. Why the first three at all? Why did it end after three? Again, we have to chalk this up to the mind of the Lord that is beyond us. His ways are beyond us. It's part of what makes him God and us not. We don't know. But we do know at times throughout the history of God's people, we would sometimes be protected as he judged the people around them. And then sometimes God's people would suffer along with those being judged or experience the consequences of sin in this world. Now, the ultimate purpose, though, is there, there will eventually be a distinction, eventually, there will be a very, very clear distinction between God's people and the offspring of the serpent. In this story that will happen in, in chapter 13, and the ultimate story that will happen on Judgment Day, a separation of sheep and goats. Until that day we live in this world, even in the visible church, there's a mixture of the seed of woman and the offspring uh, of the serpent, the wheat and the tares, Jesus would call it in a parable in Matthew 13. Now is not the time for separation, Jesus says, we all grow up together and experience much of the same in this world. We're not given a special inoculation from COVID-19 just because we profess Christ. We don't live in an invisible force field shield that keeps us safe from the effects of sin in this world. Certainly in uh, one or an, an, a particular instance, God can intervene, save, heal, protect. There's hundreds and Hundreds of stories <coughs> of God's people uh, doing that for, for uh, stories of God doing that for His people in particular incidents, but there are also hundreds and hundreds of stories of God's people suffering along with everyone else. To say otherwise is to proclaim a version of the wicked prosperity gospel. Get on God's team, and you'll be healthy and wealthy, protected from the virus. 
Certainly that's going to muddle the motivations of people about why they're professing devotion to God. For the, for the sake of having Him or for the sake of the benefits of having Him. I mean, honestly, if you told people in our world right now, if you believe in God, you won't get sick and die from this virus or your loved ones. There could possibly be widespread conversions. But for what? Why? The gospel is we get God. Not that we get heaven now, but we get God now. And he promises to never leave us nor forsake us. He promises to provide all we need to do his will and to serve him and others. But he does not promise to remove us from trials and tribulations of the suffering of this world. We can actually potentially give him more glory by loving him and adoring him as we suffer with humanity and aren't simply protected from suffering. God is so good that he's even good as we suffer with him. Now that refines motivations for why people come to him for salvation. The end result of the plagues is the release of the Hebrews at the end of Exodus 12. They come out of Egypt and they begin a journey that will define them forever. In fact, this whole episode in the life of God's people defines them throughout the rest of their history. It's referred to, it's alluded to, it's, it just flavors them forever. Let's go back and focus on a couple significant aspects of this story. First, we'll see God as Yahweh and then God as the Deliverer. First, God as Yahweh. Going back to Exodus 3, you see God revealing himself with a special name for his covenantal people. Moses is 80. He's been tending sheep for the last 40 years. After being raised in the palace of Egypt, trained in some of the finest schools in the world, he spends the next 40 years tending sheep. Not really a job in line with his training and uh, intellectual abilities. Really in this cycle that he probably assumes will carry him until he dies. Until this one day, out of nowhere, he sees a bush on fire. Not being burned up by fire, but on fire. And from the bush, God speaks. And here we have probably the most detailed conversion story um, in the Bible outside of Paul's conversion on the way to Damascus. And, and, and like has happened throughout the Bible so far, it's God taking the initiative to come to his people. God speaking, God coming to man first. And the experience with God is very much like the experience with God uh, the Israelites would later have at Mount Sinai. God is holy, God is fearful, now, do not come too close. This is holy ground. Keep your distance. Yet at the same time, he is drawing near. And Moses asks him an honest question in verse 13. If I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What should I tell them? Remember, Moses spent the first 40 years of his life in Egypt. He's trained in their schools. He knows all of their deities. He knows that dozens and dozens of their gods, they all have names and specific jobs. So it makes sense to him, well, here's another deity. If I ask your name, uh, they ask what your name is, what should I tell them? And God responds. Uh, God replied to Moses, verse 14, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. The God of your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, has a name. I am who I am. I am self-defined. I'm not like the Egyptian gods, God of the sun, the earth, the wind, the sky, or whatever other aspect of life and creation they needed God for. No, I'm not confined by any part of creation. I'm, in fact, defined by nothing in creation. I define myself. I am who I am, the ultimate flex of all flexes. 
In the original language of the Bible, in Hebrew, this is signified by what, what's called the Tetragrammaton, the four Hebrew consonants that in English look like Y-H-W-H. Uh, there were no vowel, vowels in the original Hebrew, and so we think it's pronounced Yahweh. Vowels were added later, but it came to signify the covenantal name of God, special and significant to the Jewish people alone. In fact, in your Bibles, whenever you see the word uh, Lord in all caps in the Old Testament, then you know that the Hebrew word being translated there is this name of God, Yahweh. As compared to when you see Lord, it's just capital L, which is the more generic name for a God, uh, Elohim. Uh, that's being used in the Hebrew. The significance from Moses in the Hebrews is that this God who is holy and on fire and unapproachable and will shake mountains before them, will judge Egypt with plagues that will blow their minds, this God is very personal. Not only is he the God of your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, not only is he been sovereign over your entire existence as a people, growing you and prospering you, but he has remembered the covenant that he made to them. He's remembered you. He sees you. He has a name and he wants you to know it. This is part of the progressive revelation of God. And as this redemption story unfolds, more and more we find out more and more about who this God is. Of course, for us as New Testament Christians, the ultimate revelation in the name of God is Jesus Christ. In fact, Jesus uses this story to make an amazingly strong declaration about his identity in John chapter 8. You can turn there if you want to. But in John chapter 8, there is a tremendously uh, tense encounter between Jesus and the religious leaders, picking up in verse 30. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. Then Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you continue my word, you really are my disciples. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. We are descendants of Abraham, they answered him, and we have never been enslaved to anyone, uh, which is not true. They were currently enslaved by Rome. How can you say you will become free? Jesus responded, verse 34, Truly I tell you, everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. A slave does not remain in the household forever, but a son does remain forever. So if the Son sets you free, you really will be free. I know you are descendants of Abraham, but you're trying to kill me because my word has no place among you. I speak what I've seen in the presence of the Father, so then you do what you've heard from your father. Our father is Abraham, they replied. If you were Abraham's children, Jesus told them, you would do what Abraham did, but now you are trying to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. Abraham did not do this. You are doing what your father does. We weren't born of sexual immorality, they said. We have one father, God, throwing back in Jesus' face his scandalous origins. They did not believe the virgin conception story. Now, beginning in verse 42, notice the, the following section. See and hear the distinctions between the seed of the woman and the offspring of the serpent. Jesus said to them, <coughs> If God were your father, you would love me, because I came from God and I am here. For I didn't come on my own, but he sent me. Why don't you understand what I say? Because you cannot listen to my word. You are your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he tells a lie, he speaks from his own nature because he is a liar and the father of lies. Yet, because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. 
Who among you can convict me of sin? If I'm telling the truth, why don't you believe me? The one who is from God listens to God's words. This is why you don't listen, because you are not from God. Skipping down to verse 54, they ask him, Who do you claim to be? Verse 54, If I glorify myself, Jesus answered, My glory is nothing. My Father, about whom you say he is our God, he is the one who glorifies me. You do not know him, but I know him. If I were to say I don't know him, I would be a liar like you, but I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was glad. And the Jews replied, verse 57, You're not even 50 years old yet. And you've seen Abraham? And Jesus replied to them, Truly, I tell you, before Abraham was, I am. Now, Jesus knows exactly what he is doing when he says, Before Abraham was, I am. It's one of the seven I am statements in the Gospel of John. This one is taking them right back to Exodus 3. Jesus, in essence, is saying, The same God who revealed himself to Moses as, I am who I am, that's who I am. Jesus is claiming equality with Yahweh, saying, we are the same. And we know this is what Jesus is claiming because of how they responded in the, in the last verse. So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus was hidden and went out of the temple. Now, this passage, along with several like it throughout the Gospels, helped C.S. Lewis create his famous Lord, Lunatic, Liar, Trichotomy. You cannot just call Jesus a nice man and a good teacher. A nice man and a good teacher doesn't make these kind of claims. So either Jesus is a con man, he's a liar, or he's a lunatic, certifiably insane, or he is in fact Lord. Those are the only options he has given us. And so Jesus is the ultimate revelation of who God is. God has come near. God has walked in our shoes, <clears throat> lived in our skin. He's intimately acquainted with us and what life is like for us, unique among all religions to say this about God, and we see back in Moses' encounter with Yahweh on Mount, uh, we see this back in Moses' encounter with Yahweh on Mount Oreb. Exodus 3, verse 7. Then the Lord said, I have observed the misery of my people in Egypt and have heard them crying out because of their oppressors. I know about their sufferings and I have come down to rescue them from the power of the Egyptians and to bring them to that land to a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Verse 9, So because the Israelites' cry for help has come to me, and I've seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them, therefore go, I am sending you to Pharaoh, so you may lead my people out of Egypt. I have observed their misery. 400 years of observations. You know, why, you may say, why in the world wait so long? Well, we don't have that answer. We are not God. If we simply reduce God down to someone we fully understand, then God simply becomes the product of us. Our definitions, our explanations, part of what makes God God and that we are not is the mystery of his ways being beyond us. But what we do know is that this was always part of his plan. Go back to Genesis 15, verse 13. Then when the Lord is, is, is reiterating his promises to Abraham, they had that covenantal ceremony where the animals slaughtered and split in half, and, and, the, and the presence of the Lord walking between the, the halves of the animals. He follows that up. Then the Lord said to Abraham, Know this for certain, your offspring will be resident aliens for 400 years in a land that does not belong to them, and will be enslaved and oppressed. However, I will judge the nation they serve, and afterward they will go out with many possessions." 
That was told to Abraham in Genesis 15, well over 400 years earlier. So even if we don't understand God's timing in all the circumstances of life, we can still trust him. He is in control and he's working out everything according to his good, wise, and kind plan. He is not aloof. He's not distant. He hears every single cry. And uh, verse 7, I know about their sufferings. The same God who says in Psalm 56, you yourselves have recorded my wanderings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? He not only hears, he not only cares, but what makes the most powerful and meaningful reality for us, I have come down to rescue them. He is our deliverer. What good is it if God knows and cares but has no power to help? This was the conclusion of the Jewish rabbi Harold Kushner in his famous book, Why Do Bad Things Happen to Good People? He could not reconcile that dilemma, so he redefined God into something or someone he could manage. God is loving, but obviously powerless to help us in our sufferings. And I would say the Bible boldly declares that as hogwash. He is our deliverer. He knows, he cares, and he has power. For the Jews, this meant deliverance from Egypt out of slavery, through the Red Sea and eventually into the land of promise. And, and this story would forever define them as a nation of, of, of people. In fact, you'll, you'll see they travel to the the land of promise, other nations and people groups and kings had heard this about them. Oh, you're the people whose God delivered them out of Egypt with signs and wonders. Like Moses didn't get credit for this. Aaron didn't get credit for this. None of the Hebrews got credit for this. For the rest of their history, they were known as the people whom God delivered. God got the glory. God got the credit because it was God's work. That you're the people whose God delivered them out of Egypt with signs and wonders. We better be careful in how we deal with you. You have a powerful God. But their deliverance is a foreshadowing of our spiritual deliverance. Their exodus from Egypt pictures our exodus from spiritual bondage. Their redemption from slavery pictures our redemption from spiritual slavery. And the clearest picture of this is through the Passover meal. Read and study Exodus 12. See the lamb, the perfect spotless lamb selected, kept in their home for a period of examination, found to be spotless and perfect, but also becoming like a family pet. So there is grief as this lamb is slaughtered. Little uh, uh, kids are playing with this lamb and feeding this lamb. And loving, oh, now dad has to take the lamb out and slaughter. I'm sorry. And the blood of the lamb being spread over the doorpost. That, that was the hope of the Hebrews on that night. The night the angel of death came through the land to take the life of all the firstborns. The hope of the Hebrews was not that they were Hebrews. Their ethnicity, their family lineage is not enough to save them that night. They had to follow the instructions given to them. They ate the meal, they spread the blood over the doorposts, and they waited as death swept over the land. Maybe holding their firstborn child. Will this be the last night that I, I hold this child as you... Begin to hear the weeping and wailing in the night throughout the land. Would they make it through the night? Would that be enough? Would, have they done enough? I'm trusting the word that I received, that if I slaughter this innocent animal, and I spread its blood on my house, my child will live. Being stuck in your home as death sweeps over the land, hoping you've done enough to protect your kids and family. Kept enough distance. 
There's so many opportunities to Jesus Jew people right now. But seriously, be open to these conversations as this progresses, as despair and hopelessness creeps into the hearts of people in our culture, as neighbors and friends and family, as the gods that we've created through this this world are exposed as false gods, sports and financial security and health and wellness. We're going to be able to answer questions and fill in the blanks for people like never before. Like just asking friends and families this past week, just texting people, uh, how are you doing? How are you handling all this? Where, where's your heart at? How do you feel about these things? And then trusting the Spirit to get you to the gospel. Um, uh, for the Jews, they applied the blood and they waited. And they hoped they had done enough. That's all they had. Just trust in the word they've been given and the instructions they've been given until morning. When all of a sudden, can you imagine what that morning was like? Redemption realized. Get up, grab your belongings, pack up your house. We are free. We are alive. We are free. And we're leaving even with spoil from the land to, to, to go worship our God and be a people. And of course, you can see the parallels to, to Jesus and the picture of Jesus in this, the innocent Lamb of God, examined for three years, found to be perfect and spotless, slaughtered as Paul would write in Ephesians 1.7. In Him, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. In our hope and trust to avoid death, um, forgiveness of our sins, to be reconciled back to the God who created us, our hope is squarely in Jesus. He did enough. He did everything. He is the blood of the Lamb that covers our sins. We are off of the self-righteous plan, trying to be good enough, trying to impress God enough to make ourselves right with God. No, we only deserve death. No matter how good we think we are, judged against a holy God, all we've earned is death. All we deserve is judgment. The sweetness of the gospel and Jesus are only sweet when you taste how bitter our sinfulness is. The joy of our, of our salvation is exponentially greater when we grasp the depths of the darkness of our hearts. We've come out of Egypt, not only surviving death in the night, but leaving with the spoils. So salvation isn't just about not dying for our sins, it's also about life in Christ. We're not a people just trying to survive, we are a people seeking to thrive, to experience God's best in this life, which doesn't always mean prosperity and health, but it doesn't exclude prosperity and health. But we are seeking to experience the fullness of Christ in this life, no matter what this life looks like for us, in prosperity, in health, in sickness, and in death. Thriving in Christ as wealthy first class, uh, first world Christians, thriving in Christ as third world Christians, thriving in Christ in health or in sickness and death, experiencing the peace of God, the shalom, and the blessing of God in all circumstances. Jennifer reminded me of this uh, yesterday Paul's command in Philippians 4 to rejoice always, written in prison. Because Jesus lives inside of us, we've been delivered from the penalty of sin, we have power over sin, and therefore we can choose joy because we have Jesus. We can choose love, we can choose peace, we can choose fearless, selfless sacrifice and devotion because we have Jesus inside of us. 
Yahweh, Jesus, is with us, church, not just to know and care about the suffering and struggles and even sin that we're enslaved to, but the power to deliver us, deliver us from the penalty of sin through Jesus, deliver us from the power of sin through Jesus, and one day deliver us even from the presence of sin. COVID-19 feels like a plague, but it too will bow before our great and most high God and his power. It will not last forever, but God will. This is what gives us hope. Not that all circumstances will turn out like we want or like. Not that we'll avoid the virus or the people that we love avoid the virus or that all the things we're trying to do to keep the spread of the virus from happening will ultimately save us. No, our hope is in God. What God has done and is doing and will do to save us. Not just save us from from sin and the penalty of sin, but save us one day from the presence of sin. All All the circumstances of our life are in the hands of this most high sovereign God, our Father, Yahweh, Jesus Christ. He's got us. He's with us. Trust Him. Rest in Him. And if you don't know Him, He wants to know you. Call out to Him today for deliverance, redemption, and salvation. Father, we are incredibly grateful for Your grace Your grace that you would save us, that you would deliver us, that you see our sufferings, that you see the the tribulations of our life, you see the sorrow of our hearts. You Even now, you know the fears that we lay down at night with and we struggle to sleep with at times. You you know the, the angst that we feel as we live life every day. And you care. And not only do you care and you know, but you have power to deliver us. Father, we pray for that. We, we ask for deliverance from this virus that is sweeping our world. We, we pray that if you would so choose, you would clean, clean this thing up, clear this thing up instantly in a miraculous way that would give you all the glory and the honor of all the nations. But if you choose to do that, uh, not do that, if you choose to allow this to continue through our world, through our communities, we, we continue to intercede for others and pray for their healing and their protection. We pray for those who are on the front lines working as healthcare providers. We pray for those who are working in grocery stores uh, to keep food supplies open. We pray for their health and their protection. But most of all, we pray that they would know Jesus, that Jesus would be the treasure of their heart, that Jesus would be what satisfies, satisfies them more than anything else, that, that death is coming for all of us, whether through this virus or through something else. And so we all need Jesus. So I pray the reality of Jesus would settle even deeper in us. We would enjoy him more and share his love with more people through this season. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.